It's great to see you all this morning. Uh, to reiterate what Aaron said, uh, we want to say happy Father's Day uh, to all the fathers who are with us. We, we thank you for choosing to, to join us for worship uh, this morning. So if you guys could open up your Bibles with me, I hope you have them with you. Even if it's a phone Bible, you're going to want to open that up. We're going to be referencing it often this morning, but we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 for our time together. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you'll remember, we've been, we've been in 2 Peter 2 for a couple of weeks now, kind of touching on these false teachers that are coming against this church that Peter is writing to. And here in chapter 3, we're going to see his continuation of kind of addressing these issues that are um, at play in this local church. So 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 10. Here's what it says. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, we thank you yet again for an opportunity to open our Bibles together as a church, Lord. Uh, we want to be people who are formed by your words, God, not the words uh, from our own lips or the words from uh, society at large, God, but we want to be people who are grounded uh, in all that you have revealed about yourself to us in Scripture, Lord. And so would you uh, comfort us by your word this morning? Would you console us with your word? Lord, apply this word to our hearts, God. Help us to be those who do grow up into salvation, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So where is the promise of his coming? This question that looms over these verses. You know, people have uh, mocked Christian doctrine since the earliest days of the church. You know, early on, there, there was this mocking that would say, how could you follow a Messiah who was crucified? How could you follow this Savior who was killed in this most shameful way. 
At one point, the church was accused of being cannibals, uh, believe it or not. People heard about how when they took of the Lord's Supper, they used really strange terminology. When they talked about taking and eating uh, of Christ's body, and they were labeled as cannibals by scoffers at that time. And then even throughout Christian history, we've see, we see that loyalty of Christians to God as, as the one true king that they submit to and serve has had Christians labeled as anarchists, as insurrectionists, as those who can't possibly exist uh, in government or society. And so scoffers have always risen up to sow doubts and to destabilize the faith of believers. And we see this today. You know, today's scoffers might have different lines of questioning, but the aim is the same. It's to sow doubt, it's to destabilize. You know, you might hear, do you really believe that God would want people to repress their sexuality? Do you, does that sound like a loving God? Or you might hear, how can you believe in this idea of an atonement? of a substitutionary atonement, this idea that the Son of God has taken your place at the cross. Some would say, isn't this just some sort of divine form of child abuse? This is scoffing that we see. Or they may ask a version of the very question that we see posed in this uh, passage before us today, this question of where is the promise of his coming. It might have a slightly different spin for us today. You know, you might hear, how can you believe that Christ will come back when there is so much injustice and so much pain in our world? Do you really think a God who saw this, a God who knew that this was happening, would sit idly by and let it go on? They would say he's not there and there's no chance of him coming back to set things right. You know, if you are not grounded in in biblical truth, these kinds of questions can destabilize your faith. They can rock you. They can shake you to your core. And this is what Peter recognizes when he's writing to this audience. If you remember, even from the past couple of weeks, Peter, he's pushing back against these false teachers in these churches. You know, he calls them out. Last week, Aaron shared with us, he calls them out for being prideful, for being greedy, for being lustful. He says that they're, uh, he has a lot of different uh, ways of talking about them, but he says that they're waterless springs. He says that they're mists driven by a storm. He's getting at this idea that there's no substance to these false teachers. They will say anything for a dollar. They will do anything that they have to to fulfill their lustful desires. And now we see, even in these verses today, that they will even go so far as to deny the promised return of Jesus Christ. This is a glorious promise that serves as the foundation of hope for believers, that Christ will return for them. But the false teachers, they so doubt about this day of the Lord that is coming, that these believers believe in. They pry this hope right out of their very hands. And this day of the Lord, you may have heard these words even before. It's kind of, it's, it's a very intense terminology. You almost kind of see it as a banner across the store, the day across the sky, the day of the Lord. And, and as we encounter that in this passage, uh, what we need to see is that it's this cataclysmic end of history when Jesus Christ will return. You know, it's the day when uh, God, he's going to judge the world concerning righteousness. The story of the world as we know it will come to an end on this day of the Lord. 
It's the day that the Old Testament prophets foretold. When we look back in Isaiah, we see him there saying that the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted. It will be a day that's going to be all about Jesus. He will be the central figure on this day and he will on that day be rightly exalted as the king over all. And we all know what this is like, right? What, what it's like for someone to have a day all to themselves. We're celebrating Father's Day after all. We know what it looks like to, to do this. We even find ourselves in graduation season right now. And you have likely experienced what it is to, to come along for someone's graduation day and all that that kind of entails, right? With graduation day, as you're celebrating this person, you clear out your schedule. You, you cancel all your other commitments. You turn your focus away from what's kind of going on in your own life and you give your undivided attention to this person on their special day. You go out to their favorite restaurants. You give them all of your attention. They're the central figure of this day. And this is what it will be like on the day of the Lord. It will be the day when Jesus Christ will be the central figure. He will be highly exalted before all people. It's gonna be a day when, when the blazing holiness of God is gonna be actually felt by all people. This final day of reckoning, when everyone who has ever lived is going to be held to account. Every human who has walked the earth will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And I give us that picture of the day of the Lord because I want us to see that this is the day that these false teachers are trying to diminish. This is the day that they want to sow doubt in these believers' minds about, that they want to drive out of these believers' minds. And, and we have to see that this would have touched a nerve with these particular Christians. You know, they, they've witnessed and experienced persecution to a great degree, and the odds are pretty high that they are starting to ask these questions themselves anyway, that they're starting to ask about Jesus' return. You know, is he, is he really going to come back? Why is he letting us suffer so much? It's been a while now since Jesus died. Surely if he was going to come back, he would have done so by now. Maybe these false teachers are right after all, is the way that they would likely be thinking. But into that, Peter responds in these verses, and he says, contrary to what these teachers say, the day of the Lord will come, and it will come in God's time for God's reasons. That's the main idea for us to catch in these verses, that the day of the Lord will come in God's time for God's reasons. Contrary to the questioning that we will hear in our lives, the, the questioning that we ourselves will wrestle with internally, maybe even at times in our lives, this day of the Lord will come in God's time for God's reasons. Look again at verse four with me. This is the scoffers. It says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers, they say, you, you can't possibly believe that Jesus is going to return. Can't you see that God doesn't consider his creation? Can't you see that he's not attentive to this world? They say nothing has changed since he created the world. He hasn't intervened at all. 
He doesn't care about what is going on down here. But Peter wants to expose the, the foolishness of this kind of question. And in the next three verses in five through seven, he looks back to Genesis. He looks back to this time when human wickedness got so bad that, that God visited earth with a judgment. He covered the earth with water. He judged the ungodly. And he wants to show these believers and expose the foolishness of the false teachers in this idea that God has visited in judgment once and he will do it again. He's given us evidence. There's a precedent for God intervening in his world in this way. Him actually considering what is happening on the face of his world. And what's so incredible about the false teachers in this is that they're, they're so far gone in their slavery to sin. They're so bought into how it will help them fulfill their own desires that they forget this plain truth in Scripture. They forget or they maybe even choose not to remember what is true and plain in God's word. They've been so blinded by their sin. Their vision has been so distorted, so driven to fulfill their sinful desires, they will downplay and they will dismiss true doctrine, which I think is instructive for us even as we think about this in our own lives. The way in which sin serves as blinders on us from seeing what is actually true. We will downplay every doctrine that gets in the way of us being able to do what we want in engaging in sin. If we are already in sin, that is the trajectory that we set ourselves on. We have to see this. And the false teachers, it really, it makes a lot of sense that they are raising these questions, that they're following this line of question because the, the last thing that sinful, self-centered people want to acknowledge, want to hear about, want to believe in is that there is a day coming when they will be judged. This is the last thing that those who are living life on their own terms, those who are chasing every desire that they want this is the last thing they want to hear, that there's a day coming when they will be judged, when they will be called to account. This is uncomfortable news to consider in that spot. And so it only makes sense that the surest way to justify our sinful actions in this life is to believe that we will not have to stand before a holy God who comes to judge. Once we get rid of this inconvenience, we can give ourselves license to do whatever it is that we want to do in this life. And this is what the false teachers have done. This is what they're inviting this audience into, is this way of living and being in the world that disregards the idea that God will return, that God considers what's happening on his earth. And so regardless of the, you know, the doctrinal gymnastics that these false teachers try to perform in talking with these believers, the reality is not going to change at the end of the day. Jesus Christ will return and God will judge the ungodly for what they have done in this life. This is, so far, you're, maybe this isn't the Father's Day message you're looking for. Um, hold on, We're, there's, there's always gospel hope. Verses eight through nine, if you wanna look there, they help us see that this is the day of the Lord that is going to come in God's time for God's reason. Look there in verse eight. It says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. Peter draws on, on Psalm 90, which is this psalm that Moses writes where he's reflecting on the eternal nature of God. In, in the psalm, Moses writes these very words that Peter pulls in here, that, the, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He tells us that, that God does not keep time as we do. He tells us that the, the eternal author of time, he works on a different schedule than we do. He works on his own schedule. A.W. Tozer, a uh, prominent Christian in the 20th century, he says, God never hurries. He says, there are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. D.A. Carson, he talks about how the eternality of God, it shows how utterly stable and reliable God is. And then in contrast, it shows how transient human life is, right? We see in scripture that all, flat, all flesh will wither away like grass, but the word of God remains forever. God himself endures forever in a way that contrasts with how finite our existence is. We are here for a moment, but God has always been and will always be. And if this is the case, then our judgment of time is so much more limited than we actually realize. You know, from where we sit, it might seem like God is taking forever. This is especially true when we are facing suffering in life or we're especially aware of how much suffering exists in the world around us. You know, we, we ask the question, why won't you come back already, God? How could you be so unkind to leave us dangling in the wind? Haven't we seen enough war, enough death, enough injustice, enough suffering? But here, Peter says in verse nine, that God moves at his own pace. And God moves at his own pace for a specific reason. He does it to give people time to repent. He moves at his own pace to give people time to repent. What seems to us like unmerciful delay is actually gracious patience. Not unmerciful delay, but gracious patience. And really God's understanding of time being different than our own, I think it's well illustrated when you think about uh, how parents and children conceive of time. You know, if we uh, think about going all the way back to childhood, uh, when you go back to when you're a kid, you're walking through the store with your parents and you see something that you like. You know, say you see this, this bike over on the shelf. It's, it's a red, huffy bike. These details don't have to show any wounds from my childhood. There's a red huffy bike on, on the rack over there and you tell your parents how much you want it. But your parents, being the wise figures that they are, they know that every third week this store puts these items on sale for 70% off. And so what do they tell you that day? They say, I need you to wait. It's gonna be a few more weeks. I need you to hold on and then we'll get this bike for you. It makes perfect sense when you're the parent's. You know, parents are savvy with their money. They, they know that uh, this is ultimately what's going to be for the best for the family. Uh, but what, is, what does the child say to this? What is their response? I'm sure it's reasonable. No, the, the child says, why don't you love me? How could you, how could you keep this from me in this moment? I thought that you loved me. And, and later on, as this child grows up, 
you come to, to learn that it's, it's highly possible and maybe even likely that your parents' understanding, that your parents' ways were higher than your own ways, right? And it's amazing to see how just the same thing plays out in our own relationship with God. That God's understanding of time, that God's ways are higher than our own, and yet our, our scope of view is so limited, is so finite. It's as if we can't possibly conceive of why we would wait, why God would have us wait. And yet we see that his, his patience, it's purposeful. It's driven by his heart, verse 9 tells us. Driven by his desire that people will reach repentance. Back in the prophets, in Ezekiel 33, uh, the writer there, he says uh, about God, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Psalm 145 gives us this amazing statement that we see all throughout the Old Testament where it says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. And remember, remember Jonah. Remember Jonah's reason for not wanting to go to the Ninevites. You know, back in Jonah 4, you see him say, he says, I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't want to go to the people because he knew God's heart. He knew God's desires, that he wanted to see people reach repentance. That's what Peter shows us in verse 9. Yes, God will come in judgment. But we do not need to see him as, as this one with his sword drawn, eager and ready to shed the blood of the guilty. We can see him based even on the, the character that's shown to us of God in verse 9, that, that he's almost more like this caring father who is staying up late, keeping the light on, ready to welcome into the house whoever would darken the doors. Now from, from this verse, from verse 9, your minds may be going to a different place. You know, we, we shouldn't be led to see this verse as endorsing a kind of universalism. You know, that, that in the end, God will make sure that everyone does, in fact, reach repentance. That, that kind of idea would run counter to, to the very idea of the final judgment that Peter's talking about. But what we should see in verse 9 is that the kindness of God that his patience and prolonging his second coming is going to mean that many more people will be welcomed into salvation. Many more people will be saved because of God's character in this way. And I think the implication of verse 9 is clear for us. You know, even if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. If you have not already done so, the implication is embrace and trust in Christ now. This, this day of the Lord is coming when it will be too late to do so. And yet God in his grace has given you more time. You can embrace him now and, and then be welcomed into God's presence on this day of the Lord that we talk about. Look there at verse 10. Peter then, he takes pains to affirm the certainty of this coming day. Verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says the day of the Lord will come and it will be the day when everything in this life will be exposed. Everything will be found out. Nothing unjust in this life will be hidden. And this is a terrifying thought to the ungodly. This idea that you would have your deepest, darkest sins exposed to anyone at all, much less creator God, is a terrifying thought. And yet, to the righteous, it is a terrific thought. That everything will be exposed, that, that everything that we see in terms of injustice in the world around us will be shown for what it is at this last day when God returns in judgment. And then as Christians, it's a terrific thought too, because if we have embraced Christ, then we don't have to fear being exposed later. It's not something that we wait for with fear. On the day of the Lord, when, when Christ returns in judgment, the Christian who is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be as safe as they could ever be. They will be as safe as they could ever be. He in that moment will be your righteousness. He in that moment will be your hiding place. He will be your shelter. And we can see, even if we look back at an example from history, you know, the, when we're thinking about the, the settlement of America, the, the pioneers on the Great Plains, they would regularly, you know, kind of participate in this practice of protecting their settlements from oncoming prairie fires by scorching the grass all around their homes. And they would do this because what they knew was that the flames, they posed no danger to this area that had already been burned. And what we see when we think about this idea of the last judgment, when we think about Jesus Christ being our righteousness, we see that just like that, Calvary is the only safe place from the coming judgment. It's the only safe place from the coming judgment because it's the only place where God's judgment has already been. We are safe, if we are Christians, we are safe from this coming judgment because God has already dealt with us in Christ upon the cross. Our judgment has already been passed down and we have been declared righteous in the eyes of God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins have not been ignored, but they have been judged in Christ Jesus. And so everyone stands before the judgment seat. Scripture teaches this clearly. But, but only those who bowed their knee to Christ at Calvary can do this without fear. Only those who have bowed their knee to Christ at Calvary can approach the judgment without fear. Listen to, to question 52 in the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a 16th century catechism. If you're not familiar with what these are, it's, it's this kind of instructive device that's used where you have a question that's posed and then an answer that's given. And it's a way to help kind of drive the truth of God's word down into one's heart. But question 52 in this catechism, it says this, the question, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? 
The answer, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. The day of the Lord will come. This is a certain promise. It will be cataclysmic. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. And even still, it will be a comfort to the Christian. It will be a comfort to the Christian. Yes, we will all be judged, but for those whose life is hidden in Jesus Christ, there is nothing to fear. We can join the early church in saying, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. When Christ is, is our Lord, we can long for his day to come. We can long for it to come. And so let's, let's long for the day of the Lord, church. Let's do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Father, for all of the truth of the gospel, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are one who has intervened in your creation. Yes, in judgment, in Noah's time, but we also see how clearly you have intervened in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you looked upon the state of man, you looked upon our, our helpless condition lost in our sins, making a mess of our lives. And you did not leave us to wallow in sin, to wallow in self-pity, God, but you, in Christ Jesus, came to do something about it, God, to make a way back to yourself, Lord. And so, God, we, we just want to be people who are more and more digging into that truth, Lord, who are more and more trusting in every promise of the gospel, Lord. And so would you give us the ability to do just that, God? Would you, in our own lives, even clear away uh, the confusion and the clutter of the 10,000 voices that we hear from each and every week, Lord? And would you help us to see what is most true? Let us see that we can have life in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. Let us see that we have nothing to fear if we are in Jesus Christ, Lord. And that we can even, even now, today, we can eagerly await, we can eagerly anticipate the coming day of the Lord when you do return for us, God. There's so much hope wrapped up in this doctrine, Lord. Would you help us to more and more hang our hopes upon it, Lord? To see it as good news to us. And would you even more and more motivate us to holy living, motivate us 
to gospel proclamation in light of this truth that you will come back, God. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We pray, God, that this week that you would continue to drive this truth down deep into our hearts, Lord. We love you. Pray this in Christ's name.